Well, good evening. It is a great blessing to be here with you. We uh, still have lots of warm memories from the last time we were here, how kind you were, and, and uh, just a lot of good things that we can still think about when we think of coming here last summer. So uh, may God bless you. It's, it's good to be with you. And I was uh, thinking on the way out, if we, if we need to be certain, um, or maybe I should, I should say it this way, until we believe that God loves us, it's hard to trust him. But once we know that God does love us, it's easy to trust him and place our faith in him. And uh, what more do we need than the cross of Jesus to place our faith and our trust in God? And he does love us and care for us. God loves you and wants to bless you and your life. I'd like to greet you with the words from the Bible. And it says, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters, and as the voice of mighty thunderings, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. So I greet you with those words this evening, the precious words of Christ. When Daniel called me about a month or two ago about coming here for this weekend, we had discussed a topic or something to talk about, and we agreed to talk or to teach from the life of Joseph. There was lots of lessons from Joseph, his story, and uh, I've decided to change it a little bit. And we'll use some of Joseph's life lessons maybe as, as um, an initiative or an initial beginning here for these messages. But I'd like to take then one strand or something that we can make applicable to our life, something that that spawns from Joseph's story, and then use that for a topic for the rest of the the evening. So uh, as we think about the story of Joseph in the Bible, I'd like to say, first of all, that when we take the Bible and categorize, I've heard it said this way, that if we place the Bible into categories, we'd see that it's 75% in narrative form, or three-fourths of the Bible is in story form. God is telling his story. About 15% of the Bible is given to us in a poetic form. There's poems, such as the book of Psalms and so forth. And the final 10% would be in propositional or teaching, instructive. So when you read the Pauline writings, the epistles and Paul's writings, you see it's almost all instructive, it's teaching. But the majority of the Bible is still in story form. And I really believe that there's a power in the story of the Bible and in the stories. There's a power in the stories and God seemed Joseph's story important enough to give to allocate 13 chapters of the Bible to the life of Joseph. So, as we think about the life of Joseph, I'd just like to make some general observations and some, some fast takeaways from his life and then move into the topic that I have for this evening. As we look at Joseph, the overarching theme in Joseph's life is one of integrity. And... Um, the, the definition, the, the, the dictionary definition for this word is honesty, incorruptibility, a wholeness, a soundness, having a high moral character, honesty to be complete, solid, and without blemish. And I think that pretty well um, describes Joseph. So the word is integrity. The second point observation here as we study the life of Joseph, we see that God had Joseph on a journey, and he has you and I on one as well. And one speaker said this way, that becoming a man or a woman of God, to become a man or a woman of God is a lifelong process, but it must have a beginning. It must start at some point. 
and maybe yours can start tonight. Or as uh, the book of Genesis basically means a beginning, a beginning. And uh, when we read Paul's letters, he talks about a regeneration or a regenesis, a new beginning. So maybe some of us can experience a new beginning tonight and a newer, fresher walk with God. Thirdly, I'd like to say that nothing is accomplished if our concept of integrity is to be self-made or self-earned. We do play a part in this. But apart from being in Christ and being subservient to him, I think that all efforts in integrity are reduced to vanity. It's in him, by him, and through him that we move, we live, and we have our being. It's in Jesus Christ. Some quick takeaways from the life of Joseph, something we can think about and apply to our life. God took Joseph at approximately 17 years of age and placed him into a pagan culture, an enormous pagan empire, and left him there. And Joseph hung with God's program, although he didn't know it. God had him there and placed him into this culture, and Joseph stayed there and stayed with God until every single person in the Egyptian nation knew of Joseph's God. Every person knew about Joseph's God. Could God do that to you and I, to place us into a town or a city, a village, and leave us there until the entire village knows of your God? Even the king was proclaiming the God Jehovah. Secondly, as we study the life of Joseph, we see that it is possible, it's very possible, to build a life that is good, pure, true, and free, in spite of having a terribly bad foundation or a bad start. And I won't go there just now, but Joseph's life had a, a very bad start, very bad, bad foundation, his family life, his upbringing, and so forth. But it is possible to build a life that is good and pure and true and free, in spite of having a bad foundation. The next takeaway we have here on Joseph is that God had Joseph on a journey. He was on a destiny. There was a place of arrival for Joseph. Joseph was on a destiny, and he, all the, the whole while being orchestrated by God. And it's possible for God, well, all of us are on a journey, on a destiny, and God has a final place for all of us. And some of, our, some of us have detours until we get there. It's possible for God to prepare your heart and the next place he has for you simultaneously, he's preparing you and the next place on your journey, and he brings the two together in God's perfect timing. God can simultaneously prepare you and the next place on your journey, and he brings the two together according to his timing and not always ours. This is emphasized in the story of Joseph when Joseph languished in, languished in prison wrongfully. He had done the right thing and had turned aside Pharaoh's, Potiphar's wife, and was put into prison, Joseph attempted to free himself from prison by telling the butler to remind the king that he's a Hebrew and wrongly imprisoned. He said, say a word for me so I can be free. Had Joseph freed himself, he would have still been a slave in a foreign culture with a, with a master possibly far worse than Potiphar. He would have had just one foot outside of the prison, but God left him there. And when God brought Joseph from prison, he put him into Pharaoh's court, the second highest ruler in the land of Egypt. So Joseph was on a destiny. And when we rush ahead of God and get to the place that God has for us before God has that place ready for us, we can be in trouble. I think I'll save some of this for later, but there is a thing called, that I call the triple approach to Old Testament scriptures, a threefold interpretation, but I'll leave that for another evening. It'll help us to understand some of Joseph's story, the threefold approach to, to biblical interpretation. 
So the next thing in Joseph's life is we find his story in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings. And the book of Genesis begins with a spectacular creation account, an amazing account of creation. A brand new world comes into existence, beautiful, beyond description, and um, a glorious uh, creation account. But then the book of Genesis ends with these words. It says, and he died, and they placed him into a coffin in Egypt. And it is talking about Joseph. The next thing to consider is this, and that's the sovereignty of God and how that God works in our lives. Um, God raised up Moses in a palace to use him for a work in a desert. But then God raised up Joseph in a desert to use him for a work in a palace. And as we look and study the life of Joseph, there seems to be something that transcends or that's even greater than just his personal story. And that is the sovereignty of God, God's hand in all of this world, the sovereignty of God. I'd like to read just a few, pa- a few verses from Genesis, Genesis chapter 39, it'll get us into the story somewhat, and then we'll take um, a theme from that for the rest of the evening. So in Genesis chapter 39, we read this. It says, And Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him of the hands of the Ishmaelites who had brought him down thither. And the Lord was with Joseph, and he was prosperous, he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptians. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house, and all that he put and all that he had he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in his house, and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field. And he left all that he had in Joseph's hand, and he knew not aught he had, save the bread which he did eat. And Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. And I'll leave off from reading there. So as we think of the life of Joseph and God's hand in his life, I can't help but to see the sovereignty of God at work, God's plan, and Joseph was the chess piece, so to speak. And um, as, we, as we think of that, we know that God placed Joseph into Egypt to, to, pre, to preserve the nation of Israel, but Joseph couldn't have known that. So we see the sovereignty of God overarching Joseph's life. And I'd like to talk tonight on the sovereignty of God for the rest of the evening, to talk about the sovereignty of God and then the free will of man. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about God being in total control of the entire world at all times. God is in absolute control of everything in this world. And there's nothing that happens, there's no surprises to God. He is in absolute and total control of everything that goes on. And, um, but then we juxtapose that with the free will of man. The fact that we have the freedom of a will to make choices. And um, it's hard to understand this. Both of these are absolutes. Both of these are true. And I think that the problem is is that we don't know where the one ends and the other begins. There's a legitimate tension between the two or legitimate mystery. We don't know where God's sovereignty ends and the free will of man begins. And there's a legitimate mystery and we have to leave it at that. I think we can categorize it in the same category as the virgin birth and the resurrection of Christ. We simply don't know where the one ends and the other begins. 
So as we think about the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, I believe that God has a definite plan and a purpose for this world, and he will carry it through. God has a definite plan and purpose for this world, and he will carry it through. God is in control of all things and is constantly at work in accomplishing his plans. We also believe that God is using everyone at all times to carry out his plan. God is using every person at all times to carry out his plan. He's using you and I currently to carry forth his plan for this world. And when you and I act out of right motives, God uses us. When we act out of wrong motives, God may still use us for his purposes. He controls and uses everyone, even the devil, in working out his plans. And when we read in Genesis chapter 3, we see where Satan thought he had defeated God and God's creation by causing man to sin, only to make for the possibility of a savior. So God uses everything and every circumstance to carry forth his plan. We believe that all things are from God, but then we have the dilemma of evil in this world, and, and it is a dilemma. But I think that evil has an agency. There's an agency. God doesn't carry it out, but it's carried out by man. I think most, if not all, of evil in this world has a human agency. It's carried out by persons and not so much by God. But all things are from God, and it's hard to understand. I've heard this illustration and helped me somewhat to understand this, that if you and I were to go to the mailbox one day and find an electric bill for $500 and we're used to paying about $50, we probably wouldn't stand by the mailbox the next day with an axe to grind with the mailman because it wasn't he, it wasn't his fault. He was only the agent who delivered. And we also believe that even that all sickness and affliction are part of God's purposes and under his sovereign control but it does not follow that all sickness and afflictions are necessarily chastisement for sin. And we can see Job's story for that. So the dilemma of the sovereignty of God and the free will of man and how that these two interact and how that we have the freedom to maneuver beneath this sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful God. So we said that God is in total control of all things at all times. If we were to put our thinking caps on, and I know that analogies break down eventually, but just think with me for a moment. If you and I could have been with God before the creation of this world, and God is trying to decide, determine the type of world he's going to build so that you and I can live in it, um, there are at least three possible models that God could have used. And the first would be an amoral universe, and this would be one such as the Garden of Eden, where the tree of knowledge of good and evil was never breached. An amoral universe, there's no right, there's no wrong. Or it could have been a compulsory world, would be the second model, in where only right can be done. We can only do right, we cannot choose wrong. Or the third model would be a world in where humanity has the freedom of its own will, where humans can choose and make choices. And that, of course, is the model that God used. And the reason, I think, is this, that the center of God's being... Maybe the most important attribute of God is his love. His love. And what God wants you to experience, and me to experience more than anything else in this world, is to experience his love. He wants us to partake in that love. But love assumes the freedom to choose. Love will always assume it has the freedom to choose. In other words, I can't force anyone to love me, and I can't force you to love me, but love has the freedom to choose. 
So only in this kind of a world where humanity has its own free will is love even possible. Only now can we even possibly experience God's love. But only in a world where love is a possibility because love is not free, but it binds itself. It binds persons together. It draws hearts and binds people. So love is not free. And so that only in a world where love is a possibility does there also then remain the possibility of loss and pain and sorrow and failure. And only in that kind of a world where loss and pain and sorrow and failure are a possibility does there also remain the possibility of a savior. And it's only in that kind of a world that there also then remains the possibility of redemption. And so we see as we traverse this circle, we experience love and experience pain because of love, experience a savior who saves us from pain and hurt and experience redemption. As we travel this circle on, the, on our own free will, we find ourselves right back in God's bosom, exactly where he wants us in the first place. But we have arrived there partially, and I say partially because I'm not taking anything away from the work of the cross, but we have come back into God's bosom where he wants us partially on the merits of our own free will. The rigidness of the parameter. We'll move into a different subject here or different section. If God is all sovereign and all knowing, but we have the freedom to make choices, then how does God keep us for himself without violating our free will? If God is all sovereign, but we have the freedom to make choices, then how does God keep us for himself without violating our free will? It seems that, number one, it seems that God has placed a parameter around his own. There's lines that we don't cross, and a lot of that is done by the Holy Spirit being pressed upon our consciences. There's lines we don't cross, and God keeps us with the Holy Spirit being pressed upon our conscience. Secondly, our will must be surrendered to God's. And there's really only two persons in this room tonight who know whether or not you really want to be in God's will or not. And number one is you, and number two is God. Thirdly, the Bible tells us that God disciplines those whom he loves. In Hebrews, it says he chastens us for our benefit. In Proverbs, for whom the Lord loves, he corrects. And Revelation 3.19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. So God keeps us for himself by disciplining us from in times. So it's to be understood that there is a parameter placed around the children of God. There's a circle that God has placed around us. There's lines that we don't cross. And here's where I think our choices and God's sovereignty intermingle. There's lines we don't cross. Christianity is a trained way of life. It's a discipline. We train ourselves. It's a trained way of life, a discipline. But did you ever know that all religions are trained way of life, is a trained way of life? All religions are disciplines, whether it's Hindu, Islam, Buddha, whatever it is, they're all disciplines. But Christianity alone is a discipline that also provides the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So you see the two being brought together, God's sovereignty and our choices. The fourth way I think that God keeps us for himself without violating our free will is a reminder. And this is a philosophical reminder. And that is that we have the freedom to make our own choices. 
We're absolutely free to make our own choices, but we're only free within confines. We're only free within confines. And that is because God has set up his system in such a way that you and I are completely and totally free to make our own choices, but we are not free to choose the consequences from those choices. In the same way that God works to keep us for himself, he has another system, and he uses civil governments then to maintain law over the ungodly. God has a system to keep his own for himself. He has a system to maintain law over the ungodly. That's the civil government in our world. The Bible tells us that there is no power but of God, and the powers that be are actually ordained of God, talking about our government. In Proverbs, the Bible says that the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and as the rivers of water, he will turn it whithersoever he will. But recently, when we think of our government here in America, our government has made a dramatic shift into liberalism. It's made a dramatic shift into liberalism, but then it uses an expression of virtue to cloak those iniquities. It'll use an expression of virtue or goodness to cover its iniquities. For instance, um, perverted marriages are justified as one's personal rights and freedom. Aborted babies are justified as a, as a mother's moral right and her moral choice. I think there's a lesson for us here, too, because sometimes we also use an expression of virtue to cloak our desires. We use an expression of goodness to cover our intentions and our desires. Have we recently checked our motives and where do your desires come from? Where do my desires come from? Christian music, Christian movies. Are we using an expression of goodness to cover iniquities and wrong desires? You see, there's such a fine line between that which is sacred and that which is profane. If, we, if we're redeemed, at least in part, on the merits of our own free will, then yes, our choices do matter. The next part of God's sovereignty is the problem of evil in a realm of love. The problem of evil in a realm of love. Remember we said the world was created so that we can catch on to God's love, so we can experience. The world is a stage from that perspective. It's a stage where God presents his love and we see it and we buy into it and partake of God's love. But how then can there be the presence of evil and wrongdoing if God is wanting only to convey his love to us? Why does an all-loving God allow for the existence of evil if the, if the earth is a stage whereupon he wants to display his love? The first answer, I think, is this, and that is that all choices must have alternatives. We cannot choose good unless we can also choose bad. So all choices must have alternatives. And evil doesn't come from God. Evil is the choices of men. It's the choices of men. And evil entered, entered into this world in the Garden of Eden when man took it upon himself to play God and redefine what was good and evil. What God had pronounced as good, man redefined it and played God. And before the fall of man in Eden, there was only one prohibition. Don't eat of the fruit. After the aid of the fruit, there's just this explosion of prohibitions of things we cannot do. 
We said that God controls and uses everyone, even the devil, in carrying out his plan as an agent only. Um, a couple of examples. God uses everyone, even the devil, and seemingly wrong, to carry out his plan. In the Garden of Eden, when Satan thought he had defeated God's beauty, God's creation, it only resulted in the possibility of a savior. The story of Joseph, after his brothers sold him, never expecting to see him again, at the end of Joseph's life, he said to them, what you had intended for evil, now God has seen for good. The sovereignty of God. And we, t- we read of David in the Bible, and David really only became broken and usable after he was chased and harassed for years by King Saul. God uses evil and makes it good. The story of the cross, when even God's plan of redemption seemed to be defeated, it resulted in a resurrection and a power, the power of the resurrection that's now available to you and I. So the problem of evil in a realm of love There's an amazing, fascinating story from history that helps us understand how God worked through evil. And it's a story from China, and one of China's most notorious leaders, Mao Zedong, you've probably read of him, Mao, from about 1940 to 1976. And because China was such a closed country at that time, a lot of the atrocities, a lot of the wrong that Mayo did never made it into public record. It never made it to newspapers and news, newscasts and all of that. But it's believed that just millions, literally millions of people lost their life under his regime. Millions of his own people were killed and slaughtered and starved and so forth. A very, very wicked leader, hated religion, hated God, railed against Christianity. And um, I think it was in the 1950s in maybe the Shanghai Post, one of the Chinese newspapers, Mayo was featured on the cover and saying he had now effectively driven God from China. And he said, God shall never come back here again. But what's amazing is that the communist regime that Mayo introduced and enforced left the people with no hope and no purpose. There was nothing to live for. And... It opened up in an unprecedented expectation because people knew something better than this was available. It left people more empty than ever before. And a system that Mayo had built, a system that he said was completely airtight and human-proof, has now been broken through by God. Has now been broken through by God. China has the fastest-growing church in the world today. There are people by the thousands, by the tens of thousands, at an exponential rate coming to place their faith in Jesus Christ in China. An estimated 50 to 100 million Christians in China. And yes, it will be the Chinese Christian who now carries the gospel message into the world. It will be the young, the Chinese young, who are now going to carry the gospel story into the world. You see, I think after all the dust has settled from empires that rise and fall, And all the stories are told, and all the arguments are cashed in. And at the consummation of all of history's past, when God finally brings in the scroll and rings out the deeds of history, one fact will still remain, and that is that what man has intended for evil, now God has seen for good. Footprints in your pathways. How does a sovereign God who is all-knowing and all-controlling, how does he direct your pathways without violating your free will? 
How does an all-knowing God direct your footsteps? First of all, why would he do that? And the answer is because he desperately wants you for himself. God wants you for himself, desperately wants you for his own. So how does God leave his footprints in your pathways? I think he does so through the examples of those who have gone before us in a lot of ways. He does so through your parents, your heritage. Solomon says, the lions have fallen me in pleasant places. Lo, I have a goodly heritage. So God leaves his footprints in your pathways through the examples of your parents in a lot of ways. Our mothers and fathers have left their footprints in our pathways. I can honestly tell you that my mother has passed away many, many years ago, probably 20-some years. There's not many days that go by that I don't still see her examples in my mind. Her footprints are still in my pathways. Jesus also left his footprints in your pathways. Jesus also has left his footprints in our pathways. But who was Jesus? And why should his footprints be in your pathway? We can talk about the Bible. Something called the three greater than is found in Luke chapter 11. This first story illustration is not in Luke 11. But as the disciples and Jesus are walking one day, they point to the temple and and tell Jesus, Behold, Master, what manner of great buildings are these? Expecting Jesus to just be completely wowed by the glory of the temple, Jesus says, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. Speaking of his body. Then he says, Behold, one greater than the temple is here. Another place, he says, behold, one greater than Solomon is here. And thirdly, behold, one greater than Jonah has come. You see, the temple in Old Testament times was a dwelling place of God. It was where they went into to worship and worship towards God. Jesus says, behold, one greater has come. The object of your worship is here. The one whom you worship, who you go into the temple to worship, has come. The object of all our worship is here. He has come. Behold, one greater than the temple is here. The greater than Solomon is here. Solomon was the wisest man ever made record of. The wisest man in history. But you see, Solomon only knew wisdom. He didn't have wisdom. He only knew it. He never applied it to his own life. His life ending in shambles. Jesus says, the beholder, one who knows and does wisdom has come. The one who knows true wisdom and lives it has come. Behold, one greater than Solomon is here. One greater than Jonah. The Israelites had boasting rights in Jonah. There was no other nation in the world who had a prophet who was swallowed by a whale and lived to tell the story. A miracle. The Israelites had claimed to a miracle. None of the heathen nations around them could make that claim and sustain it. They had a miracle unduplicated by any of the other nations. Jesus says, behold, one greater than Jonah. The greatest miracle that God will ever give you has come has come. The greatest miracle is here. That's who Jesus is. When you read in Matthew chapter 17, the Mount of Transfiguration, it says after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John and takes them and goes into a high mountain apart. A high mountain apart. And it says when they're in the mountain, away from the other people, it says, behold, Jesus was transfigured before their eyes. His face Shown as the sun, his raiment was white as the light. And then it says, Behold, there appeared unto them both Moses and Elias. And Peter, just overwhelmed by it all, 
wants to build a, a tabernacle, a permanent earthly dwelling place for these three figures. He wants to stay here and retain this moment. He said, Master, let me build three permanent earthly dwelling places, three tabernacles, and we'll just stay here. It's good to be here. And even as Peter is speaking, the Bible says a bright cloud overshadowed and a voice just thundered from the cloud and said, this is my son. This is my son. Listen to him. You see, there's something happened on the Mount of Transfiguration. There are three components that come together. When the Bible talks of Moses, it's talking of the law and the word that is written. It talks of the prophets. It's talking about the word and the word proclaimed. Moses, law, and now Jesus, Messiah. All three of these are components, if I can call them that, that came from eternity. But they all went back there again. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus came from eternity, but they all went back there again. There is no grave marker for Jesus. No earthly dwelling place for Jesus for now. There is no grave marker for the Lord, for Jesus. He did not stay here. He came from eternity and returned there again. But while he was here, he left his footprints all over the place, and he left his footprints directly in your pathways. So how does Jesus leave his footprints in your pathways and in mine? Did you ever know that a Christian, a true Christian, and we all fail and we're all on a journey, but a true Christian is one who can trace his actions, his words, his responses, his recourses back to the words, the teaching, and the life of Jesus. And once we can trace our actions and our words and our responses back to the life of Christ, we're truly Christ ones. We're Christians. How does Jesus leave his footprints in your pathways through his life example and through his teachings? He said to love your enemies and to bless those who curse you, to good to those who hate you, and pray for those who despitefully use you and persecute you, and then you shall be known as the children of your Father who is in heaven. Whenever you come to a hard place in life, a pathway that's impassable, remember that Jesus has already traveled there. He has preceded us, preceded us in all of our pathways. He's gone before us in all of our pathways, all the way to Calvary and beyond. The songwriter captures this. He says, The Master has come and called us to follow. The track of his footprint he has left in our way. More over the mountains and through the deep hollows, the path leads us on to those mansions of day. The Master has called the children who fear Him, who march neath Christ's banner in His own little band, who love Him and seek Him, who long to be near Him and rest in the light of His beautiful land. The Master has called in life's early morning. With spirits as fresh as the dew on the sod, we turn from the world with its smile and its scorning to cast in our lot with the children of God. The Master has called us His sons and His daughters. We plead for His blessings and trust in His love. And through the green pastures, beside the still waters, he will lead us at last to his kingdom above. And last of all, why does God allow for pain and sorrow? Why would a God who is omnipotent, who can do anything he wants to, and if his goal is for you to experience him and his love, why would God allow for pain and sorrow to come into our lives? If God is sovereign and controls all, why does he allow for pain and sorrow into the lives of his people? 
I think the first answer is that it's in times of loss, our time of loss and pain is actually a divine appointment with God. Our times of deepest loss are our divine appointments with God. I well remember standing beside my mother's coffin as a young boy, realizing at that moment God had finally tracked me down. It was that moment that God had finally tracked me down. I had nowhere left to turn. Times of loss are a divine appointment with God. Secondly, sometimes it's the only way God has left to get our attention. We make ourselves so busy with the cares of this world that sometimes a hard time is the only thing, the only way God has left to get our attention. I remember reading a story, being fascinated by a story some years ago, and you've read it too, how that March the 8th of 2014, there was a large, enormous, wide-bodied jet that flew out of Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, and it was en route for, for um, a destination, Beijing, China, about a six-hour flight, and left at one o'clock in the morning. And as the plane gathered speed and got up to flying altitude, for some reason it veered sharply off course. It veered westward instead of north, and then veered again and flew on south, out across the enormous Indian Ocean. And the people who have followed the story believe that the plane flew on as a ghost plane for hours across the Indian Ocean, everybody on board possibly already dead. And it flew on and on until the fuel becomes exhausted. One engine dies, followed by the other, and the plane tumbles out of control, and it falls down and sinks into and beneath the inky black waters of the enormous South Indian Ocean, and it's never been heard from again. It's just gone. It's disappeared. As I was following that story and reading the newspapers, wishing there'd be a clue that they would have found the plane somewhere on an island, landed safely, but no clues came. It was gone. Never heard from again. I, I came across a story of a man who lived in southern India, in the Chennai district of India, and how that he awoke on the morning of March the 8th, expecting his wife to come home from a business trip. And as he's watching television that morning, he's finding himself fascinated to a story of a missing jet airliner until he realizes that's the same plane his wife was on on her return trip. And now he's desperate. And days go by and weeks go by and nothing, no word is heard. His wife was on there. And he wrote a letter, one of the most painful things I've ever read in my life. And this letter was made public. And he talked about how that he walked the streets of Chennai wishing to see her again. And then he begins to talk about things like this. He says, maybe, he was a Hindu by faith. He said, maybe there's a possibility of eternal life after all. And in conjunction with that, he, he said, maybe in, in conjunction with the possibility of eternal life, maybe there's also this eternal life giver. And began to talk about things that Christians talk about, smacked against the Hindu faith, the words he was saying. And I couldn't help but wonder if in his tragedy, if, it, if that's what it took for God to bring him and to steer him and to turn him to himself. Did it take something that major for God to get that man's attention? I think so. I think sometimes tragedy is the only way that God has left to get the attention of certain people. And it's sad. But for the Christian, death is only a punctuation mark in our existence. It's not the end. It's only a punctuation mark in our existence. The Bible tells us that when we rise again in our new bodies, how that corruptible will become incorruptible. 
and what is mortal becomes immortal. For Christians, death is only the punctuation mark in our existence. I remember another story, a true story of a mother who was standing by the grave of her young daughter being buried that day and just weeping and no one could console her. And as she's standing there by the grave of her daughter, she hears the minister across the grave begin to tell a story. And in the story, he tells an epitaph of a funeral. And he's telling the story of how that this gardener had worked in a beautiful garden and dressed the garden and nurtured and maintained and how one day the gardener was walking through the garden in the early morning hours and he came to this beautiful flower in full bloom, just bloomed that morning. And he stood and just was amazed at God's beauty. But when he came by in the afternoon, the flower was gone. It wasn't there and somebody had cut it away. And in frustration, he says, who did this? Who took this flower in its prime, in its beauty? And as he's standing there, he's joined by another gardener. And the second gardener says, the master the owner of the garden came through this morning and when he seen the beautiful flower, he took it for himself, for his treasure. And when the gardener heard it was the master who had taken the flower, it says that he held his peace and said no more. The last point I have is this. How does a sovereign God who knows all and controls all, how does this kind of God get your attention and get my attention without violating our free will? How does God get our attention and make us sit up and take notice to what he's trying to tell us? How does he do that without violating our freedom of choice? I think he does it with a signpost in our pathway. God places signposts in our pathways. I've heard it said that the God of the Christian faith, the only true God, is also the only God who pursues us. He pursues us constantly God is pursuing us for relationship. Relentlessly pursuing you. Every day, every moment, God is pursuing you. He wants relationship with you. And God places signposts in our pathways. In Acts chapter 9, when Saul of Tarsus was arrested on the Damascus Road, it says he was walking on his way to, to persecute more Christians when he was struck down by a brilliant light, a light as bright as the sun, and a voice came from the light and it said, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he says, who are you who I persecute? And the voice said, I am Jesus of Nazareth. Is it hard for you to kick against the goads? Is it hard for you to kick against the pricks? What he really meant is, why are you kicking against and warring against the signposts that I'm placing in your pathways? Why do you insist on bloodying yourself on the markers I'm placing in front of you when all I'm wanting to do is to get your attention? God does that to you and I as well. God places sign markers in our pathways to get our attention. If I'm leaving here today and driving back 35 on my way home, and just ahead of me on the road, there's a corner, and right at the corner, just off the road, is a yard, large yellow sign with a black arrow pointing that way. I have two choices. I can come to the corner, I can heed the sign, navigate the corner, and be on my way. Or I can completely ignore the sign and crash into it and subsequently bloody myself in the process. God places sign markers in our pathways. I think that the sovereign God of this universe, the God who seems so distant and so powerful, loves you enough and comes near enough to place markers in your pathways. I think he does it every single day. I think God has placed a marker in your pathway today. I think he probably will tomorrow. 
and the following day, sometimes two or three in one day. But what are these markers that God places in our pathways and what do they really look like? I think it can be the word of a friend, the admonishment of a friend or the encouragement, our wives, our husbands, our children, our pastors, words they say, or some of the most incidental little life's happenings that we just take for granted. Look closer next time. I think God is putting signs in our pathways and he wants us to see them. I know he does. I know he does. He comes near and puts markers for you and I to see. So then in conclusion for this, as we think about a sovereign God who knows all and controls all, but still gives us room to maneuver beneath that with the freedom of our will, I'm I'm going to say again that we don't know where the one ends and the other begins, where God's sovereignty ends and humanity's free will begins. There is a legitimate mystery, a tension, that we haven't been told. We don't understand it yet, maybe someday. And I categorize that legitimate mystery in the same category as the virgin birth and the resurrection of Jesus. We don't understand it, but it's true. It's real. Both of these are absolutes. So is God sovereign? Yes, he is. Do you have the freedom of your will to make choices? Yes, you do. Can I explain it? Not really. Not really. I think in the same way that an earthly father places boundaries around his children, you place boundaries around your children, but you give them room to develop their gifts. You want them to flourish. You want their gifts and their personalities to develop all within the boundaries you placed around them. I think God does that to us as well. He places boundaries around us, protects us, and keeps us within for himself. But he gives us room for our gifts and our personalities to develop and to flourish for his glory. So yes, God does know everything about us and everything about our future. But I think God in his great mercy withholds our future from us. If we know everything God has in store for us, we'd be terrified and couldn't go on. So God withholds the future from us but he sheds just enough of light on our pathways for us to be able to see to take one or two steps at a time. Thank you for listening. I think I'm going to close with that. I'll just um, maybe offer a brief prayer, and if I can call for a song, and then I'll come and close the meeting with a prayer after that. So let's just pray.